Well, good morning again. Open up your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm chapter 69 this morning, and we'll be on page 482 in the Black Bibles that you'll see nearby if you want to grab one of those and follow along. So page 482, it's Psalm 69 in our Collide series. Collide, emotion meets truth in the Psalms. There are some very strong emotions in the Psalm this morning. Uh, the name of the Psalm uh, or the, the sermon, I guess, we're calling it Drowning. That's kind of the big idea. Drowning. Not, not real positive. Sorry about that. It's kind of a downer. Huh? Um, but as I've said before, there are a lot of lament psalms, a lot of negative psalms, a lot of crying out, God, where are you kind of psalms in the book of Psalms. We've said before, it's actually the most common uh, genre, right? The most common type of psalm is the lament psalm. And so here we have Another one, this is the close, the kind of the ending, the last few psalms of what is sometimes called book two. There are five books in the psalms, like five sections of psalms uh, that most people think are to mirror the five books of Moses. And so we're ending here at the end of book two. Uh, there's just a couple more psalms in book two, but we'll skip those and be in book three next week. Um, but there's a lot of laments here in book two. Here's another one, another one that is around the theme of drowning. Um, have any of you ever been uh, in a swimming pool or a lake or a river and you had that sudden panicky, panicky feeling of the bottom dropped out from underneath you and all of a sudden you lost your footing and you were going under? Have you ever had that? Raise your hand if you've had that experience at all. Um, swimming pool, river, lake, anything. That's a horrible feeling, right? And the psalmist is describing what he's going through as that very thing. As the water's rising up and he's, he's going under. He's lost his foothold. He's being swept under. So I'm just going to read the first few verses because this is a long one this morning and then we'll kind of pick at it as we go through this morning. It says in Psalm 69, to the choir master according to lilies, so we're assuming that's some tune they had of David. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. I'm going to stop there, and as I said, we'll get through more of this. But what we see is people uh, that are enemies of David or whoever the psalmist may be here, they're enemies of his, and they're hurling accusations condemnation, insult. The word later that'll show up a lot is reproach, shame. They're talking trash about him. And he says that experience of everyone being against him is like being swept under the water. So my question for you this morning is, have you ever had that experience? Have you ever felt like someone is insulting you or, or whole groups of people are against you and you feel like you're going under because no one's on your side. You're all by yourself and you're calling out to God, God, save me. Will you Stand up for me, God. Don't let them keep doing this to me, God. And you don't know where God is. That's what the psalmist is describing this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to kind of try to chip away at this as we move through it piece by piece. God, we pray that you would uh, teach us. And God, we can, we can relate to what the psalmist describes of uh, our, our throat being parched because we've been crying out to you. Sometimes, God, we don't know why uh, you wait. We don't know where you are. Uh, but we come to you in trust, and we pray that you would teach us this morning, teach us to trust you, teach us to see you as the one who will save us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
So we all know that experience, uh, or at least you can imagine if you've never had the experience of being in water, you, you lose your footing. Um, I can remember taking my kids to swim when they were toddlers and they couldn't swim yet. And that feeling of panic would be heightened as you're trying to, you know, tread water with a little 50 pound kid in your arm, trying to hold them up. And all of a sudden you, you lose your footing or you slip off, right? And so then you're not only feeling like you're drowning yourself, but th then you're afraid you're going to lose your kid with you too. So it's this horrible panicky feeling. I've had that feeling many, many times of like, oh no, I lost my footing. And that's what David is describing here. He's saying, I'm going down, God, and where are you? Only you can save me. And he's connecting that feeling of panic, that feeling of drowning with all these people being against him, pushing against him. Uh, we've seen in other places where we think there might have been a physical situation that David was asking uh, to be saved out of, right? We talked about this before, like in Psalm 40, there might have been real quicksand he was stuck in that God needed to save him out of. Here, it's very clear that he's talking about a social situation. People are lying about him. People are pushing against him. People are accusing him. He has real enemies that are attacking him, and that's what feels like drowning for him in this situation. So we know in this situation, he's really describing the feelings that he's going through. And so as I said before, this this gives us a model of how we can deal with those kinds of feelings of being totally all alone, being totally betrayed, being abandoned. We can communicate those feelings to God. We don't have to be afraid to communicate those feelings to God. And so the first thing I want us to think about is that drowning, this feeling of drowning, can drive us to prayer. It can drive us to prayer. It can drive us to communicate with God in a way that we wouldn't have before. A lot of us struggle with the idea of God being distant and other, and so sometimes we just don't take the time to communicate with him. But what we see in the Psalms is David is convinced that God is intimately interested in his life. David is convinced that God loves him dearly, and that drives him to pray. That drives him to take his hardest emotions, his most terrible feelings, to God. I want you to see that. If you believe that God loves you, that's going to drive you to prayer in the midst of those painful experiences. When you're going through painful things, you're not going to just go, well, you know, whatever, God's in control. You're going to pray to him. You're going to say, God, help me, save me. And that's what he's modeling for us here. Look at verse 1 again. Save me, O God. Save me, O God. In the Hebrew, that would have sounded a lot like Jesus' name, right? Because we know that that's what his name is. Yahweh saves. The, the verb for saving is very similar in sound to the name Joshua and Jesus um, that's, what, that's what the name means. Jesus saves. That's who he is, right? And here he's calling out to God saying, Save me, God. Save me, God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched and my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Have you ever called out to God so long and so hard that you're parched? that you're dried out, you don't feel like you can see straight anymore? Have you ever had that experience of just crying out to God in prayer? God, where are you? God, what's happening? God, this hurts so much. Again, that's, that's what the, the Bible models for us, that this is a normal spiritual life. I think so often we have this cleaned up version of what it means to have a life of faith that we don't think it should ever look like that. That's too messy and out of control but this is what's modeled for us here. Crying out to God, God, what's going on? God, save me. God, help me. God, this hurts. And he's parched. He's dried out. He says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. 
Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. So again here we see, she's being very clear, this is not a physical attack, this is an attack with lies. This is people spreading uh, junk about him, lying about him. He says, they attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Like he's been accused of stealing something or taking something. Verse 5, he says, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Here we see that he doesn't believe he's perfect, right? He knows he's a sinner saved by grace. We saw that real clearly in Psalm 51, right? The confession of sin that we saw in Psalm 51. So he knows he's a sinner saved by grace, but also he's saying, but that's not what is happening here. I'm not being accused for things I did. I'm being accused for things I didn't do. Have you ever been in that position before? Where someone's lied about you, made stuff up about you? And you've had to, you've had to sort that out with God. Like, God, I know I'm not perfect. I know I deserve your wrath, and I thank you for the grace you, you've given me, the forgiveness and salvation you've given me. But, but I definitely don't deserve this because they're making this stuff up. This isn't even real. They're, they're lying about me. They're attacking me. And that's what the psalmist is describing. I have a picture here of uh, sadness. It's a picture of a baby crying. Um, and I want to just kind of burrow this into your, your brain, your heart, that this is often what it looks like to walk with God. It, it can look like tears. It can look like sadness. And so often we don't allow for that in, in modern, modern American Christianity especially. Um, we, we talk a lot about kind of this most prevalent, uh, broken perverted strain of Christianity that's around right now is often referred to as the health and wealth gospel. It's the gospel of your best life now, right? Of you can have everything perfect for you now instead of waiting for heaven for that. The Bible promises you get to carry your cross now and heaven comes later. But American preachers have often perverted that and say, no, you can have heaven now. But what the psalm is modeling for us is a life of tears, a life of struggle. It's a life of pain. And if we're going to follow Jesus, Jesus is one who is a suffering servant. So if you want to follow Jesus, that means you're going to be a suffering servant also. So I want to challenge you this morning. Are you, are you really interested in following Jesus? Right? Like I, I'm always wanting to invite people to Jesus. And I would tell you he's, he's better than anything else. But also I want you to be completely aware of what you're getting yourself into. Right? I want you to know what you're buying, and it's carrying your cross. It's being a suffering servant. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. It's not like it's a hopeless message. It's just a hope-deferred message. It's a hope-down-the-road message. And that's what Jesus proclaims to us, and that's what David models for us here. So as we think about this idea that this feeling of drowning drives us to prayer, this need to cry out to God, drives us to, to talk to him. God, what's going on? Where are you? Save me. I just want you to remember that that's a, that's a good habit to have in your life, to tell God about your pain, to admit your pain to him and to others. That's a part of a healthy spiritual life. So one of the things that uh, men especially struggle with, but I think this happens to men and women, is one thing I talked about before this this normal kind of maturity that we grow up with of controlling our emotions, right? We, we learn to not throw ourselves on the floor and have a temper tantrum every time something doesn't go our way, right? And that's, that's a healthy sense of growing up. You got to learn to control your emotions a little bit. But the other side of that is to walk with God means to let those emotions out sometimes too. To actually admit to others, I'm struggling. Will you pray with me? 
Will you pray for me? I'm hurting. And so a healthy spiritual life means not only self-control, but also self-expression of being real and being honest about that. We've got to live out that tension in our faith with God. I'm not saying we just say everything that ever comes in our mind all the time, right? Not completely emotional, you know, just, just spill it out everywhere you go. But you should let it out, especially to God. God can handle our pain. God can handle our struggle. So pray. Let it drive you to prayer. When you're struggling, be a praying person. Ask others to pray for you. Ask others to pray with you. Talk to God yourself. Call out to him in your pain. And even admit your frustration with God's slowness. That seems like he's really pushing it here, doesn't it? He's saying, God, where are you? He's saying, I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. God, why is it taking so long? It's, o- it's okay to say that to him. God, my throat hurts because I've been crying for so long. It's, o- it's okay to say that. It's okay to ask him. We ask him because we know he loves us. See, if we didn't think he loved us, we wouldn't even talk to him about it. But we know he loves us. We know he loves us, so we can ask him. So, I know you love, you love me, so how does, how does this fit with your love for me, God? We, we can wrestle that out. As we move through the text, we come to this idea also that drowning drives us to consider our purpose, right? So as, as you're wrestling with them, right, in that first section, God, I know you love me, so where are you? Why don't you save me now? I'd like you to save me now. I don't want to just wait until I die, because I feel like I'm about to die right now. Lord, where are you? Why is it taking so long? The psalmist then begins to wrestle through what that looks like, that God could actually do something with the pain. Let's look at it. There's a word that's going to appear again and again. It's reproach. It's not a word we use a lot, but reproach basically means to insult or to criticize or to shame someone, right? And so when you hear that word popping up here again and again, starting in verse 6, think about someone, again, talking trash, spreading lies about you, um, telling you you're stupid, I'm telling you you're wrong. Verse 6 says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. So he's saying, God, don't allow me to dishonor your name through my struggle. He starts appealing to him. God, maybe, maybe it'd be good for you to save me just for the glory of your name, right? So they wouldn't keep reproaching you. So they could see you at work in my life. We see... Uh, Throughout the scriptures, people make these kinds of deals with God. You see Moses talking this way with God. God, why don't you save your people, even though they don't deserve it, because that'll bring glory to your name, right? And so in verse uh, 7, he says, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. He's saying, God, I've actually taken these insults for you. I've taken this one for the team, right? Like I'm being cast down because I've stood for you, God. So not only is it just... It's not just random people talking trash about him, but it's people talking trash about him because he's standing with God in some way. Have you ever felt like you were trying to do the right thing, like you're trying to be faithful to what God had asked you to do, and that just brought bad stuff into your life? You don't have to raise your hand, but I think a lot of us have been there. Like, God, I I did what I thought you wanted me to do. Like, I stood for you in this situation, and, and it got worse. And that's what he's saying here. Saying it's for your sake, verse 7, I've borne reproach or insult, that dishonor has covered my face. He says in verse 8, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. So he feels like a complete outsider, not just to people out there, but to his own family. 
He's been alienated from his inner circle even. This is total loneliness. This is a feeling of there's no one standing with me, God. And it's for your sake, God. And then he goes on in verse 9, and you'll probably recognize this one. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those, who's, of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Zeal for your house has consumed me. You remember uh, the apostles connected this verse with Jesus when he cleansed the temple. Uh, in John chapter 2, uh, we have a, a lot of different reports of Jesus cleansing the temple. In most of the other Gospels, it's just a cleansing at the end of his ministry. In John, we see a cleansing at the beginning and end of, end of his ministry. And so in John chapter 2, it's the beginning of his ministry. He goes in and he chases out all the people that were doing business, buying and selling in the temple. Because he said, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. So it's not supposed to be about business buying and selling and all this stuff. It's supposed to be a place where the nations can come in and meet God. That was a concern that Jesus came back to again and again. That the religious leaders put barriers in place so they were making it more difficult for non-religious people to meet God. And Jesus said, the whole point is for God to meet these people. Why are you making it more difficult for them? And so Jesus got mad. Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus got mad sometimes? He didn't just carry lambs and smile all the time, but he would get, he would get mad sometimes too when people would do wrong. He had a righteous anger and he, he tore up the temple and he turned over their tables. It says he made a whip and he chased people out. I wonder if I got a picture of that. Did I get a picture of that? Yeah, I got a picture of that. Old woodcut. There's Jesus. Even there, I don't know that it fully gets... I really wrestled with this as I was trying to find pictures because I wanted to find a picture of Jesus looking angry, but you know we, we struggle with that because then that, that might put something wrong in your head or something. So anyway, there's Jesus chasing people off, but the Gospels are very clear that he was angry. He had this righteous anger because they were making it more difficult for people to come in and meet God in the temple. And he, he cleaned house, and he got rid of them. And so the apostles say that verse 9 is the same thing happening in Jesus' life. So the same thing that was happening in David's life was happening in Jesus' life. And that was a zeal for God's house, a zeal for God's purposes. And people rejected him for that. And so again, we, we can be rejected not just because people are mean, but we can be rejected because we're standing with Christ. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. That's what it looks like to follow me in this world. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. We get a little echo of what we call substitution here, right? David, and later Jesus, takes the sins of his people upon himself. They're doing wrong, and I'm absorbing the junk from all of that. You go on, you look at verse 10. He says, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Again, God, I was trying to do the right thing. I wept, I humbled myself, I fasted, I prayed, and still it became a reproach. Still they mocked me for it. Verse 11, when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. Other translations just say they're gossiping about me, right? Here it says sitting in the gate, at the city gate is where they would talk about the news of the town, people coming and going in and out of the city through the gate. That's where the gossip would happen. He says they're, they're making fun of me. They're mocking me here at the gate. He says, verse 13, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. 
So again, this word steadfast love, we've talked about a lot. It keeps coming up in the Psalms is the idea of God's covenant love for us, his special saving love for us as his people, that he adopts us in love. He says, answer me according to that love. I know you love me. I know you're gracious, so please save me because of it. Verse 14, deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. Please hear that he is arguing and crying out to God based on what he knows about God's character. When we cry out to God and when we pray for God to heal us and to help us out of a situation, we pray based on his gracious character. We don't pray based on how great we are. We pray based on how great he is. So I want you to hear that as we pray to God, even as we beg God to move in our life, we beg him based on his gracious and glorious character. And that's how he's praying here. Based on your steadfast love, your mercy, redeem me. Verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. This is another fulfillment by Jesus on the cross. This is, again, a metaphor. This is really interesting. So we've got a a metaphor in the psalm that's turned into something literal in Jesus' life, right? So here, David is talking about These people being against me feels like drowning and feels like they're giving me poison. And in Jesus' life, it was real. In Jesus' life, he really did bear the reproach of all his people. He really was given something sour to drink on the cross. So I want you to see this beautiful fulfillment in Jesus. That's something that's just kind of touched on in the life of David. As, as the one that's kind of supposed to stand for what Jesus would really stand for, right? The great king, the man with the heart after God, the one who loved God's law. We've talked again and again how David was a sinner, and he didn't perfectly fulfill that as the great king. Jesus came later, and Jesus did fulfill it perfectly. Jesus fulfilled all of these things. This psalm is a beautiful picture of how Jesus fulfills the psalms. Because Jesus fulfills all of them. Some of them, we see the connection made very clearly, right? Like this one, the apostles make the connection for us. But Jesus fulfilled all the Psalms. Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament. Um, This is one of the most often quoted Psalms in the New Testament. Like if you just wanted to do a study of some of the Psalms that are repeated, I think in order it would be Psalm 110, Psalm 22, and then Psalm 69. This is like in the top three. This is one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. Uh, So these are kind of key psalm, Psalm 110, Psalm 22, and then this one, Psalm 69. It's quoted again and again. It shows the image of someone who's suffering for the purposes of God. And so back to the main point here, drowning drives us to consider our purpose. We see here the psalmist wrestling with bearing the reproach of his people. And the injustice of that and the pain of that, God, where are you in this? I didn't do it. I'm innocent and I'm suffering for what these other people that are bad did. And what we see is that's fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. Jesus is the one on purpose 
the innocent sufferer who suffered in our place, who took our sins upon himself on the cross. So we see here, David wrestling, like, God, what's going on? What are you doing? How, how are you going to use this? He's questioning it, right? He's, he's considering, God, what's your purpose in this? In Jesus, he was sure. He knew exactly what God was doing. And so I want to challenge us, me, you, that as we suffer, as that we go through pain, God could actually be using that for the sake of others. I think it's dangerous to speak into someone's life and to say, hey, I know what's going on in your pain, right? We should be very careful about that. Um, that's not good uh, comfort and counseling technique to just walk up to someone who's hurting and say, hey, I know exactly what's going on in your pain. Let me explain it to you, right? Uh, read Job if you want to see a really bad example of that. that. That's where it all goes wrong. And so we're not supposed to act as if we know the, the mysterious counsel of God, but we do know that Jesus bore our pain by grace for us as a gift out of love it's possible that we could be going through pain for the sake of others that God could use our pain and false accusations against us and struggles that we have it's possible that God could be using that redemptively matter of fact Paul makes some pretty clear connections in Philippians where he says of course I'd rather go to heaven and be pain free but I think God is leaving me here in the pain so that I can have fruitful labor and I think that's a pretty good attitude for us to have. That our life here isn't for our best life now. Our life here is for fruitful labor for other people. Our life here is to be spent for others, to be used up for others. And that includes a lot of pain. That includes relational brokenness and sickness and heartache and difficulty that we will go through. It will happen. If you're going to live in this world, you're going to experience pain. The question is, will it be used redemptively? Or will it be all about you? That's really the question. You will go through pain, I promise you. We're all going to go through pain. The question is, is there a purpose in it outside of just me and my own pain? Is there some kind of greater purpose? Can God use it somehow? And that's a good question to ask. And I think as we go through this kind of pain, it, it should drive us to reconsider what God is doing. In Colossians 1.24, another great quote from Paul, he says that he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction. And he doesn't mean that he's going to uh, add to the work of the cross. What he means is he's going to, through his own suffering, bring the work of the cross to other people. And I think that should be our attitude as well. That in our own suffering, in living one more day in this painful world, living one more day sick, living one more day lonely, living one more day frustrated, living one more day like that, should be about carrying my cross to share that with others. Should, should be to improve the lives of others. Should be to share the hope of the gospel with others. That's, that's what the next day is for. The next thing I want us to see as we close up here is that drowning will be reversed. And we've seen this theme in a lot of the Psalms, right? That he comes through this like, God, where are you? God, what's going on? I feel like I'm drowning. Why don't you save me? Why aren't you here? And then he ends up with, but I know you're going to fix everything in the end, Right? We've talked about how really only one psalm doesn't end that way. There's only one psalm that just ends in the muck. I think it's 88 or 89. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But really all of them, even the darkest of the psalms, end up somewhere positive. And we see that if you read this last section in verse 22. Um, where are we? 22. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. I actually have a picture of a trap for you here. Have you ever used a bear trap? There's a bear trap. 
Um, he's saying, let the evil deeds they're doing become a trap against them. And there's always this beautiful irony. If you like stories, the Bible's full of great irony, right? Great reversals, like in the story of, of Esther and Mordecai. These great reversals where evil is turned back against itself. Where if you commit yourself to being all about you, like trying to give blessing to yourself and give evil to others, that evil's going to be turned back on you. Right? The way Jesus says is those who uh, want to be first will be last, and those who want to be last will be first. There's this great reversal that God's going to turn on everyone. Those of us that give up our life and use our suffering to bless others will be blessed. And those that make others suffer now to bless ourselves will be cursed. And that's what we see here, this trap turned against them. There's a great reversal. Let their own table be before them, uh, before them become a snare. So their bounty, their table of riches is going to be turned against them as poison. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So here in army language, he's describing the great reversal. They will be desolated. They will be defeated. Um, how many of y'all are in the army? Some, some in the army here? Think, think of the mottos and the patches you have, you know, like, you know, the, the death dealers and hellhounds, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's, that's what David's doing here. That, that's what he's describing. He's describing this utter destruction that is a just destruction of the wicked. And he's say, saying, God, bring it. Bring this judgment of evil. Now, Peter says God is incredibly patient giving people time to repent. He's giving creation, he's giving humanity time to turn and repent. Because we all deserve destruction. And God takes that destruction on himself on the cross. And so God is very patient. But here David models this desire we have for justice. If, if you've been treated in terrible ways, you, you want to see justice come. And God says that it's going to happen. There's, there's going to be a final reckoning. It's all going to be settled someday. And that can actually give us hope. It's confusing. Mo most of us don't pray this way, right? Most of us don't really know how to, how to deal with this as we're reading these in the Psalms. But just know that a final day of justice is coming. And God has said that justice will come, that judgment will come, but now I'm giving uh, patient time for those to repent, to turn, and to trust in me. Romans 11 picks up some of these verses. Romans 15 is also another place that uh, some of Psalm 69 is quoted. And in Romans 11, it talks about the judgment on Israel for not believing they're broken off of this olive tree, right? And so the picture in Romans 11 is that God has this people 
and his people are like an olive tree. And if you trust in God, you're a flourishing, fruitful part of the olive tree. And if you don't trust in God, but trust in yourself, you're broken off the olive tree. And he says in Romans 11 that Gentiles, non-Jews, are grafted into that olive tree by faith. And then he warns the Gentiles, and he says, but be warned, just like the Jews, you stand on the olive tree by faith. It's by what God has done for you. It's not by what you have done. And so Paul connects these judgment words with the understanding that we can only be connected to God and what he's doing in the world by trusting him, by trusting him. And there's going to be this great reversal where those who trust in themselves will fall, but those who trust in God will be elevated. I want to close up uh, by reminding us that we all can be in that place where we feel like we're drowning, right? We can all be in that place where we feel like my feet are slipping, I'm going under. God, where are you? What's happening? And as you think of the imagery of drowning, I want you to remember the way that imagery of drowning is captured in the New Testament. Jesus went through baptism to associate himself with us as our our God, as our chief, as our captain. And then he calls on us to go through this ritual of baptism. And I would encourage you when you feel like you're drowning to remember your baptism. That God says, I'm going to save you through drowning. I'm going to save you through death to yourself and trust in me. You see, we're not saved by our own strength and effort, by how strong we can swim. We're saved by Jesus who takes our place. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in this body, in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That's our hope in the midst of drowning. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you do love us, that you did give your life for us. And God, we pray that you would shape us because of it. Help us to live our lives with purpose, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of uh, parched throats as we cry out to you, save me, God, save me. Pray that you could use our pain for the benefit of others. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.